Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode two, Look How Big My Hat Is. It's so big. This episode is going to be the backgrounding for the whole series because we're going to attempt to answer a very important question. What is a pope? We have not really chosen an easy topic for this series, and the answer to this question is far from as obvious as it might seem. The term Pope has changed meaning significantly throughout history, and wasn't even used for a chunk of the people who we will actually be covering as popes. What a pope does, or is capable of doing, also has changed significantly over time, impacting power and influence. It's one of the longest existing authoritarian institutions that are still functioning in the world. The papacy is responsible for huge historical and political impacts. Some serious scandals, wars, negotiations, the spread of religion, and human rights. So for this episode, we're going to do a brief skim of the development of the office of Pope and what it means today. And a reasonable place to start is the Annuario Pontifico, which lists the official titles for the Pope. Pope Francis, first of his name, Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the Vatican City-State, and Servant of the Servants of God. Fry, do you notice anything missing? Do I notice anything missing? The answer is Pope. Well, yeah, Pope. So, if it's not an official title, where do we actually get the word Pope from? It's derived from the Greek word for father. The earliest use that we can find of it comes from the 3rd century, as a reference to all Western bishops. Every single one? Every single one is a Pope at that point. Oh, that's confusing. It, the first reference of Pope specifically used for a Pope was Pope Marcellinus in the early 300s. And it wasn't till Gregory VII in the 1070s that the terms gets specifically reserved for the Bishop of Rome, a.k.a. the Pope. So up until the 1070s, you have people who are not Popes being called Popes. This is why we have so much confusion. But let's break down what some of those titles actually mean. Bishop of Rome. So this title boils right down to what the Pope actually is on the most basic of levels, which is that he is the Bishop of Rome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fairly self-explanatory. So the actions that come with this particular title is the elevation of bishops, the appointment of cardinals, and he mandates bishops to their diocese. That's a lot. Like, I guess they're not dying all the time. There wasn't like 400 bishops dying on Wednesday. So, I guess it's not as much work as it seems. It would be a lot of work, especially at the beginning. You know, when you're looking at Peter, who had to create the office, basically, of bishop in the way that it was going to be and start consecrating people, it used to be a pretty demanding task. It was still very small then, though. Exactly. If, if you look at Peter from the Pope perspective, this is all the Pope was at the time that Peter came to Rome. It's the primary authority in Rome, nothing else. It's not until this authority begins to grow, mainly through the emphasis of the position as the unbroken apostolic succession of Peter, 
in which Christ had entrusted the keys of heaven and the rock that the church would be built on. So Peter becomes the rock of the church, and so this is why the Bishop of Rome starts to gain an authority. And we will talk more about the whole rock discussion when we get to Peter. The primacy of the Roman bishopric is growing, and it continues to grow until it becomes recognized as the official leader of the worldwide Catholic Church. And as the leader, the Pope is now officially recognized with full, supreme, immediate, and universal jurisdiction of the faithful everywhere. Which is why the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome today is listed as the Holy See and the Apostolic See, not just Rome. Because he's in charge of everybody. Vicar of Christ. So the Vicar of Christ title is the part that gives the Bishop of Rome the grounds for authority over the other bishops, and why they become the worldwide authority. This is basically the direct expression of supreme leadership that comes with the investiture of vicarial power of Peter from Christ, which is passed down from each successor in an unbroken line, and this is very important. Apostolic succession, take notes, we'll be coming back to that. But this is probably a later addition as far as a title goes to consolidate these ideas of apostolic succession, since the title doesn't actually appear for a pope until 495 in reference to Pope Gelasius. But even at the time, we see this phrase offhandedly used for other church officials up until the 800s. So any church official offhandedly could have been the Vicar of Christ. Pontifex Maximus. So this title is a bit of a mix of syncretism and redundancy, starting with Pontifex Maximus, because this is a title that is older than the Christian church. Pontifex Maximus means greatest priest. Biggest priest. Greatest priest. The biggest one. The greatest. It's going to be huge. And was used for the chief priest of the College of Pontiffs, which were, for all intents and purposes, the highest position in the pagan religions of Rome. Pontifex and pontiff in Latin also translates to bridge builder, which represents a priest's role of bridging temporal and spiritual realities. As a pagan position, Pontifex Maximus is a position that's been held by Julius Caesar, and then again by Emperor Augustus, who absorbed it into his many, many imperial titles. And that was the way it stayed until Christianity took root. As Christianity began to grow and spread, Pontiff and Pontifex Maximus were readopted for use by the church. They were responsible for announcing the messages of the gods, teaching the application of the message, and guiding church policy. The idea of this bridge building is an appealing metaphor for the early leaders of the religion who sought to unify the converted people under God bring bishops from the far-flung church together, and consolidate other Christian leaders and Christian denominations outside the Catholic fold into one large unified church. So pontiff was adopted as a term for any Christian bishop, and pontifex maximus was more or less reserved for the bishop of Rome, who was supposed to be the greatest bridge builder of all by balancing individual autonomies of the growing churches, just the best. Yeah, he's the best. He's he's getting them to all work together under his authority, 
and expanding the faith and producing infallible doctrine, I am the greatest. He's the best around. Exactly. So by today's standards, this Supreme Pontiff title is basically a title that means highest authority after a title that means highest authority after a title that means highest authority. In case you weren't sure. In case you had forgotten. Just in case you weren't sure that he is the top dog, he wants you to know he's the top dog. Don't forget. Top dog. There's also another title that I want to just briefly mention because it's a title the Pope used to have and no longer has. And this is Patriarch of the West. The West? The West. Ugh. You know, it makes him sound a little bit like he's a cowboy. Yeah. This emphasizes the Pope's leaning towards the Latin Church and the West, but it was removed in 2005 so that it didn't cause discord or distortion with the Eastern Churches and Catholics. No favoritism. But then there's this whole other part of the Pope where we have to view him not just as the leader of a church, but also the kind of sort of leader of a territory, sort of, kind of. Sovereign of Vatican City. Vatican City. I don't know what that was. It's staying. It's there forever. (laughs) As sovereign of Vatican City, the Pope gets his political power, although it's significantly diminished from what it was when the Pope held control of a series of papal states throughout Italy in the 700s to about 1870. But it's still an entirely independent state within Rome, created in 1929. 1929? Yeah. That thing hasn't been around forever? Basically created by none other than Benito Mussolini. That's That's a choice. It is a choice. It is about 44 hectares large. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> hectares? Speak American to me, Brie. Is it Hector's American? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where it came from. And Google tells me that that is 0.16 square miles, which I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's what it's telling me. That seems small. It's very small. You can walk around it in about 15 minutes. It has about 1,000 quote-unquote citizens at any given time, and it is recognized as the smallest state in the world. Political system in Vatican City is called a sacerdotal monarchy, which makes it an absolute theocratic monarchy, which is elective and non-hereditary, which makes it unique in the modern world. But as an absolute type monarchy, this makes the Pope the supreme power in all aspects of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. So there's no separation of church and state there. None at all. Absolutely not. None whatsoever. But this is where things start to get a bit confusing, because Vatican City is a distinct geographical jurisdiction, but we also have to contend with this idea of the Holy See, which is the official holder of the sovereignty of this state of geographical jurisdiction. So, bear with us here. Let's see if we can explain this in a way that makes sense. I believe in you. (laughs) And if it doesn't work, I tried. The Holy See is an entirely different type of jurisdiction and authority. It's basically a composite or even theoretical legal personality over the sovereignty of the Roman Catholic Church and therefore of the Vatican. Vatican City is recognized within international law as a territory, 
but treaties are signed with the Holy See on behalf of the Vatican City. Oh, that's complicated. Are you with me so far? I think you lost me somewhere, but keep going. As complicated as this is, the Pope is both the sovereign of the Holy See and the sovereign of the Vatican, so mostly it's a sticking point. But it does have some practical function. And the best way to conceptualize the Holy See is as the throne of the church, and therefore the throne in Vatican City. The Pope who occupies the throne acts within both capacities as an authority over both, but vesting the power in the Holy See keeps that apostolic succession unbroken within the Catholic Church and ma maintains the monarchical integrity of Vatican City in transitions from one pope to the next. So, because this isn't a hereditary line or an elective government system, by placing the sovereign authority of the church within the sovereign authority of the geographic location, they're able to basically keep each other unbroken until a new pope can come in. Does that make sense? Yes. Nobody can come in and take it away from them. Yes. You have to be the spiritual authority in order to be the temporal authority. And so the spiritual authority is what speaks on behalf of the city when treaties are signed. You now understand the Holy See whether you think you do or not. But the Pope is a busy, busy man. And so the day-to-day -day runnings of Vatican City are delegated away, just like in every other country or kingdom. Legislative powers are delegated to the Unicameral Pontifical Commission, which consists of seven cardinals, personally appointed by the Pope, who serve for a term of five years. This commission drafts laws, which are then passed once they receive papal approval. Oh, so he can veto them. He can veto them, because he's the supreme authority. He's in charge. Don't forget, he told you three times. <laughs> he's the big dog. The heads of this commission are the President of the Governor and the Secretary Generals, who are responsible for overseeing commissions for communications, security, Vatican museums, and so on as well. Legally, there is some complexity again, because we have the Corpo della Gendarmeria as the Vatican Security and Police Force. What's that made out of? Are they cardinals too? Are there 80-year-old men with, like, jackets? These are these are straight up like police officer security guards. Uh man, I just wanted it to be 80-year-old men with like a nightstick and a gun. From this point on, it is. We have decided. But then we also have the more famous Swiss Guard, but they only serve exclusively as a force for the Holy See rather than for Vatican City. But we're going to save a discussion for the Swiss Guard for a bonus episode in the future because that's a topic all on its own. So now, Fry, I would like to take you through an average day of the Pope. So what do you think makes the Pope a busy man? Let's see. I assume that he's got he's to do mass, and then he's got to draft reports on all the terrible doings on the world so he can tell them that they're all naughty. Good guess. And then he probably has mass again, and then he's got to eat. I don't know what else he does. I bet he doesn't watch Netflix. He does not watch Netflix. Well, who knows? Maybe some of the other ones did, but I can tell you Pope Francis does not watch Netflix. Pope Francis is not a fan of Stranger Things. Alas, he is not. Let's dig into it. 
According to Don Briel, who was the director at the Center of Catholic Studies for the University of St. Thomas, the modern papacy has a, quote, visible, prominent role with exhausting obligations, and generally their days run from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. or midnight. Oh my god, does he fall asleep literally immediately? Maybe a little bit before he should, but we'll get there. So the day starts early. Both Pope John Paul II and Benedict XVI, which were the previous two popes, began their days with a private mass attended by their personal household staff in the Apostolic Palace. Their breakfast is then prepared by the household staff, and apparently this is a time where Pope John Paul II would love to have guests. He was all about breakfast parties and dinner parties. I would not come to his 5 a.m. breakfast party. I so would come to his 5 a.m. breakfast party. Maybe if I didn't sleep the night before. Francis, who does not live in the Apostolic Palace. That's right. Where does he live? Just some some apartment somewhere. He prefers to stay in the Domus Sancte Marthe, which is literally a three-room apartment located behind a gas station within Vatican City. Does he have to fill up on gas a lot? I don't think he drives, but he lives behind the gas station. And it's, it's, it, there is, there is a numbered apartment and there are other people who live in that building. And it's not holy people. It's not priests or cardinals. It's just like regular dudes. It's, it's dudes that work at the Vatican because you have to work at the Vatican to be a Vatican citizen. But yeah, pretty much it's just dudes. Sometimes he won't let his security guards ride up in the elevator with him either. <laughs> so you could just be in the elevator with Pope Francis at some point. And oh, I really wish. So Pope Francis, this is what his day looks like. He starts his morning in prayer and then celebrates mass in Santa Martha's chapel. Sometimes visitors are permitted to join the mass. And sometimes Francis just decides to sit among them for prayer. Oh, no, I'm not going to do mass right now. Let's sit down. Let me have a sit. They're going to have a prayer together. Francis has breakfast around 8 in the morning at the Santa Martha cafeteria, and he never eats alone. So someone gets to be his lucky breakfast guest. So that is awesome. Oh, every time? Yes. He never eats alone. Does he invite them? Or is it is it just like someone walking by and now you eat breakfast with me? It's generally by invitation, but like it's sometimes the people who work at Santa Martha, they'll just have the Pope be like, Come have come have dinner with me, come have breakfast with me. Pope Francis generally sets his own agenda for the day, and he books his own appointments over the phone. Wow, that would be real intimidating. Like you're not calling a secretary. So the rest of the day is usually spent in meetings. First, he meets with bishops and nuncios. Here's the thing about that. Once every five years, the Pope is expected to meet with every single bishop around the world. So that means that he needs to meet about 20 bishops a week. So they come to him and he has a meeting with at least 20 bishops a week. Then he spends his time meeting with political leaders, reviewing speeches, drafting epistles and homilies, public appearances, and correspondences. He also has this habit where he still calls the prisoners in Argentina that he used to regularly visit before he became Pope, and he keeps up with his colleagues there as often as possible. The Vatican probably has a very large phone bill because Pope Francis is calling prisoners. 
So this is generally what takes up the majority of his day, with just enough time to have a short nap in the afternoon. Oh, he gets to have a nap. He gets to have a little nap. It's like one hour. Then he spends his evening in prayer, and he has personally admitted that sometimes he falls asleep during his prayers. Quite often, he nods off. Then he has dinner at the Santa Martha Buffet again. Apparently, he's very fond of the food there. And he's in bed by 11 p.m. But Pope Francis will not go to bed until he has personally gone around and thanked every one of his staff that is working that night. I love him. Wow. He's freaking adorable and so precious. Yeah. That means every Swiss guard, every secretary, every everybody, he has to go and thank every single one of them. And this is reported in many, many sources, so this is something that has been verified. It's just wonderful. So beyond that typical day-to-day, the Pope also delivers a blessing at St. Peter's Square every Sunday for masses of travelers and pilgrims, and he holds papal audiences on Wednesdays, which, by the way, I am scheduled for on my upcoming trip. I could not be more excited about it that I am going to have a papal audience with Pope Francis. Expect, if you follow this show and continue on with us, there will be lots of pictures, there will be lots of stuff coming out in August. And of course, obviously, the Pope is is expected to head the major religious celebrations and festivals, such as masses, blessings for Christmas, and Easter, which are almost always delivered from the Vatican. Now, one of the questions that I was asked while putting this series together was, does the Pope get paid? And technically, the answer is no, not really. Technically, he gets paid, but a living Pope does not receive a salary. He's got all his stuff given to him, though. Like, I mean... Key phrase here being a living Pope. Do dead Popes get money? They do. What? So, effectively... They earn a symbolic three coins a year. They earn one of gold, one of silver, and one of copper. So the prices on those range. Mm -hmm. But this is collected and stored so that upon their death, the three bags of coins that were accumulated in the duration of their papacy are buried with them. Living expenses of the Pope are just taken from the curia funds in no set stipend. This is different than the cardinals, who actually receive what is called a cardinal's plate of about 5,000 euros monthly to cover their living expenses. That's a lot of money. This is one of the reasons that Pope Francis is all about living a lot more humbly, because that is a lot of money. They can get a nice apartment for that amount of money. Yeah, it works out to about 7,000 Canadian dollars, somewhere about 6,200 United States dollars. That is so much. So, there is one exception to this rule. Do you know what it is? No. The first living pope to really pull a salary is our retired Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI. Oh. He still actually gets a salary, and he's not dead. So, according to La Stampa an Italian newspaper which reported on the Pope's retirement, Benedict will receive a pension of 2,500 euros a month until his death, which is about 3,000 U.S. dollars. It's still a hefty sum. And you could, uh, you're gonna live well. Yeah, you're not gonna be in want there. So he, does he only get his fancy coins when he dies then? Yes. 
He does not get his fancy coins until he dies, but it will only be for the length of his papacy. He will not get extra for being alive and not being pope. I wonder how he feels about that. Well, this is a whole discussion that we're going to get into when we do Benedict XVI, because there's a lot to talk about that. So, so many years from now. Stick with us for the next 265 episodes. <laughs> and then we'll talk about Benedict and possibly his feelings. This brings us to the end of episode two. Next week, we are going to begin with the actual popes, starting with the big man himself, Peter. Peter! So we'll be sussing out a historical narrative from some pretty touchy sources, reviewing his life, and ranking him. Ooh, we get to, we get to give him some points. We do, and we get to decide what kind of person we think Peter is, because I think... I don't like him. I think he's kind of a jerk. I guess that's for next episode. This is our preview. Peter's kind of a dick. So, so to wrap up, we would like to give our thank yous again to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for supporting us as we're getting started. And I'm sure as we're recording this in advance, so if you are in the process of currently tweeting about our show, we will thank you and we will get to you for sure. We are Pontifax Pod on pretty much everything that we have our stuff on. Um, perhaps by now we will be on iTunes. Maybe I will re-record this because we will be accepted on certain platforms we weren't on before. Um, so that's Pontifax Pod. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. Please, please at us on Twitter, because we want to be your friend. We're very responsive on Twitter. If you have a question, if you have a comment, if you like what you're hearing, let us know. If you don't like what you're hearing, maybe we don't want to hear from you either, so. I mean, maybe we do, and then maybe we will laugh about you behind your back. That's exactly what's going to happen, so please, send us your hate mail. And with that, we say thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.